Hello everyone and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, your stopping point for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now here at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, fun, frivolous, and the fringe, and all the spaces in between. I'm your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now tonight's episode features an old friend of mine by the name of Bill Land. Now a quick shameless plug here, how I met Bill. Well, I got another podcast called The Stell Experience. You can check it out on iTunes. And in that documentary style podcast, I am exploring a small little town called Stell, Illinois with a very interesting past. It's right up the alley of fascinating nouns. So if you're into the show, you'll be into that podcast. Anyway, so Bill is an com- uh, intentional community expert. Uh, what is an intentional community? Well, an intentional community is a group of people who decide they want to live in a place that works a certain way. They intentionally create a community. So what Bill did, um, and what's, this is what we're going to get into later on, is he started and has lived in several communities, you know, similar to communes, communal living, that kind of a thing. Here's where it's strange for me. I have a roommate. Now, we get along great. I love them. But I I have one. I don't have 82. Yeah, I went through college without having any roommates. You know, the whole idea of getting married drives me crazy. I, I wouldn't know what to do with, you know, marriage, kids. They're all roommates when you think about it. And you kind of have to live with them. You can't even kick them out if you need to. But here, you got 82 people, and, and you're maintaining basically a city, you know, a town, whatever you want to call it. And you have rules, regulations. you got to figure out who does what, when they do it. I mean, it, it, this is a serious undertaking. Uh, and Bill, this is what he loves. Um, he's, he's great at this stuff. I find this topic fascinating for several reasons, hence the name of the show. Because, I, I number one, I can't do it. Uh, number two, I have no idea how it's maintained. And number three, I don't really understand the benefits. But as we'll find out, community, something we don't have in the modern world. And I think it's something we could all learn from. So with that I, no further ado, I'd like to introduce Bill Land. Bill, thanks for being on the show. So you're you're kind of like a community expert. So you um, you kind of fell in love with the, just the I mean because it's a sociolo- an aspect of sociology. So you're uh, what exactly interests you about it? Where's your area of expertise? Well, when I was doing doctorate work, my minor was in sociology, and I've had a fascination with small group and small group analysis. And uh, I really like the fact that um, that small groups can often function better than um, two or three or four people together. Um, I used to do a class for universities where I would have a matrix on the board, the, and um, it would have all the different kind of things that one would do, um, from food preparation to um, uh, fixing automobiles to mowing the grass and everything. And, that would be down one side, and on the other side, I would have one person, two people, three people, five people, twelve people, mm-hmm. and we would look at that for you know a solid hour, hour and a half for this like a graduate class in sociology, and we would discuss it, you know, and um, with one or two people, you really didn't have enough skills um, or enough time uh, to really get a lot of the tasks accomplished. Um, it ended up to be about twelve people. Um, that came out the winner in almost every category as we we analyzed it. That's the and perfect the, number of randomly generated people. That's correct. Okay. That's, that's correct. Now, with 12 people, 
um, you used to have enough skill diversity uh, to cover many areas. And of course, you could do pre-selection if you were working with um, setting up a community where you'd have a computer person, automobile mechanic, somebody that was really a pretty good cook or a pretty good organizer, a kind of a leader type of thing. Uh, that would make the community a lot more successful if you could do a little pre-selection. Be that as it may, the um, individuals could cover all the bases. And um, when it was l less than 12, there was usually a void of some sort. Or if somebody went on vacation or a couple people went away for six months, mm -hmm. there would be a void. Um, but it's still, or 10 people were still in the community, you could get things pretty well covered. When it got more than 12, maybe 30, then I almost always it would break into small affinity groups. Um, there would be a little bit of contention between one group contending with another. Mm -hmm. And I saw uh, some breakdown in terms of um, everybody um, kind of buying into the program when you got over 30. Um, many communities I've lived in were over 30. And um, we used to say that about one third of the people were really into community. One third was sometimes into community. One third didn't care. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the discommunities aspects, I mean, not where the community begins to break down a little bit, is where you get the I don't cares. And um, when they, they start outnumbering people, or when they just become more vocal, both, okay. both, both. And um, it's it's really nice to have community cohesion. Um, Periodically, that's brought together when there's like an accident and everybody, you know, mm -hmm. pulls together or some sort of crisis. Right. Um, that's pretty much um, uh, universal. But you don't want to have to have an accident every month in order to get uh, people to, <laughs> right. to practice community again. Right. And um, that's really kind of the, the way I approached communities. I've been uh, really involved. Uh, since the early 70s, particularly around 1979. Um, uh, actually, my wife and I um, were doing homesteading at the time. We li were living in a community. Uh, it was about a 2,000-acre community. It was pretty notorious in Indiana. How many, how many, uh, how many people were? Well, it peaked around 80 people. Uh, these are, so these are small, small communities you've been a part of. That's correct. Nothing really huge. Um, and in fact, it's hard to get a community much more than 100, uh, maybe historically in the historical uh, communes like Oneida and New Harmony, it was a lot more than that. But um, since the 60s and 70s when communes became very popular, and we like to use the word community now, it seems like it's a little bit less of a charged word. Yeah, I was going to ask the difference between commune and community. There's no difference at all, except um, often the word commune would be shared income. Where, like uh, communism, so it would be people share everything. You got on it. On a small scale. Uh, like 100%. Okay. Uh, you know, almost to the point, and they joke about this, of sharing toothbrushes. But, um, is that, that a joke or is that real? Well, it's more of a joke than it's real. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, it gives an example. Truth and jest. Right. <laughs> but the... Um, the community that my family was living in, um, we actually leased 20 acres and created an egalitarian community um, within the community and had a lot of people coming through as visitors, 
but we only peaked at 68 people on a regular basis. And um, that was very interesting sociology to take a nuclear family and, and create, um, you know, a, more of a communal open door yeah. for other people. We did that partly because of labor. We had a lot of animals, a lot of um, dairy goats and, and, and poultry, and we were producing a lot of our own food, child care issues. And um, so it was nice to be able to get away for a couple of days, which we hadn't been able to do for years. Um, and that worked pretty well. And I think that our little group did function quite well uh, for, for quite a while. For quite a while. Um, I think the main thing was income. It's hard, especially if you're somewhat isolated, and many of these communities are isolated. It's a little yeah. bit easier to function. Yeah. Um, you feel like you need privacy from the everyday world of uh, commerce and, and malls and things like that and all the attractions. And um, the isolated communities, then it's, it's hard to get a good economic going. And no matter what you try to sell at a, at a uh, art show or, or whatever you're trying to market, um, it's, it's, it's not really, doesn't really produce the income. Usually there's a couple of people in the community that work outside uh -huh. and they essentially back the community. And of course that leads to some resentment because those people tend to sometimes want to make more decisions. Right. Um, and the egalitarianism begins to break down when some people are earning money on the outside and some are not. Is it even possible to maintain that kind of egalitarian society? Or? I saw it happen. Um, I was at Twin Oaks in Virginia, uh, Louisa, Virginia, which is about halfway between Charlottesville and Richmond. Mm -hmm. I was there for a, a full year as a member, and I visited there many, many times. And um, it was a true egalitarian community. Uh, a lot of the roles of men and women were switched on purpose. Um, we did not use the word he or her, uh, which is alarming mm. because um, when you try to change um, the way you verbalize things, you, you really start to notice how much you were using it before. Right. Um, and um, a lot of the um, managerships were run um, by the best qualified people which could be a man or a woman. Uh -huh. um, I would say the dress there was rather androgynous. It wasn't just um, always really, really feminine or really masculine. Uh -huh. um, but that was their choice. It was a personal choice. And um, th there was just a huge effort at egalitarianism, including fairly new people that had come in. It's not just... Um, gender egalitarianism, but it's also um, age egalitarianism and um, skill level egalitarianism. So if a person was highly expert, they had to really make an effort to be more equal with the person they were training, which took a lot of patience. And uh, it took a whole different vocabulary of how to train somebody yeah. because you, you were not an authoritarian. It was, these people were equal to you, you just had to get their skill level up. Right. At the same moment, uh, this is very much like a Israeli kibbutz. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there were about one third of the people, roughly, uh, were from the Jewish culture, and um, they had maybe lived on kibbutz or were, were familiar with it. And so some of the language, uh, we had metas for the childcare, and um, 
they would look after the young children all day long and w most parents, natural parents, would not have to do any childcare at all. In fact, they could take a break for a month or two, a natural parent could, if they chose. Um, and there were three metas, uh, which could be parents as well, for each child. So there was a lot of focused childcare. And a meta is someone who's not the parent, I assume? A meta is essentially uh, like a, um, a teacher, a um, um, you know, not a babysitter, it'd be more than that. It would be a, a very close person, um, almost like a substitute parent. Okay. And um, very common in Israel. When Israel really had a population boom, they used metas a lot to cover the large numbers of children that mm -hmm. were being born. And uh, that was part of the kibbutz. So do people, <clears throat> do people agree on them? So, I mean, are people saying, okay, these are the people I want watching my kids? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's a total agreement there. But there's so, the value system of like Twin Oaks, uh, there was so much similarity of the quality of values that it was not hard to find good metas for your children. Um, I, I wrote a little article while I was there that it was very similar to Walden II, which is um, B.F. Skinner's um, um, book. Mm -hmm. um, from um, and Skinner was a behaviorist, and um, the community really had a lot of aspects of behaviorism. In fact, it originally was a Walden II community. That was what it was called. But the childcare was not that much Walden II because the parents did have a lot of authority to to spend time with the kids and to uh, really inculcate their own parental ideas uh, into the system. Now, did the children have equal say? Um, as much as possible, right. They, they were able to really have a lot of input. In fact, coming out of that period, a youngster, maybe six or eight years old, would often be asked um, to make some decisions. And that actually empowered these youngsters pretty early on, and they tended to do very well in school. When they finally went to public school, for a long time they had their own school, but eventually they went to public school, and they tended to do very well very sociologically balanced and the social skills were great. They were good negotiators, good mediators. Um, they were very cooperative and uh, they got those skills, I think, living at Twin Oaks. But I mean, it, it sounds like a great experiment, you know, but I would, I mean, I would argue that I think roles are extremely important. You know, I mean, if you have everyone, I don't think everyone can be equal. I don't know that societies mm -hmm. can last that, that long. I mean, because mm -hmm. you have people making decisions who aren't the most qualified to make those mm -hmm. decisions. You know, you can have people who know about, you know, let's say you're fixing a car for a terrible example, and you've got a mechanic who's there, and you've got 30 other people who don't know about being a mechanic. I mean, do you let him do it? Well, then that's not equal. Everyone should have equal say in whether a carburetor gets fixed, you know? I mean, at some point you have to default to the credentials and the, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I certainly understand what you're saying. Yeah. And um, what Twin Oaks would do is simply have new vehicles uh, so they didn't have that much maintenance. And uh, they were wealthy enough in terms of the collective uh, income that they really had fairly top-notch top vehicles, which is one of the benefits of being there. Yeah. You didn't have very many car repairs. But on the other hand, um, the master mechanic um, would be much more gentle with the way they trained and and they would be much more supportive of people in their learning process um, and yet at the same moment the Israeli kibbutz would always have a manager who would be the expert and Twin Oaks had these people too 
they would be they would take care of the budgets they would take care of the ordering the parts uh, they would take care of the interaction with the outside world um, and the so-called people being trained for more egalitarian um, like labor um, would not be involved in some of that decision making so we're not saying that Twin Oaks was perfectly egalitarian but it, it was, it's been written about a lot in sociology journals and it's got two books on two pretty good sized books on Twin Oaks um, and um, it, it's pretty much the number one um, sociological experiment it's also a very feminist community with men and women in the same community. So it, it has a feminist nature to it. That's what it's been called. That was a label. You'll have to um, explain, that, <clears throat> explain that just a little bit. Okay. Um, again, as you move toward egalitarianism, which is more toward balance, uh, you realize just how masculine and, and masculine def deferring the whole world is on decision-making, on, on, on profit income, um, on activity level, on, you know, who's deferred to all the time. And until you start living it, you, you begin to realize that, gee, a whole gender thing has is, is really been pretty, pretty much a, a constant um, you know, problem was, was really influencing things more than, than, than one realized. Um, it was kind of interesting though that, that occasionally I did a lot of cooking there mm -hmm. and there were some women that thought I shouldn't be doing as much cooking because they equated men with chefs professionally and um, maybe I had a, a little bit of pompous attitude about my cooking I don't know but I I didn't wear a chef's hat and I was still kind of on a learning curve myself mm -hmm. and I thought it was a great idea to do more cooking I I wasn't experience from youth. I, I got most of my experience with my parents. So I was living with my parents when they were getting ready to pass. And I just took that right in there and thinking that I that would be my contribution. And I had always assumed that my, my mom always cooked, you know, so I would reverse it. Uh -huh. But um, that was even challenged because cooks often make decisions and men often make decisions. That was the old way of doing things. Uh -huh. So um, it was just a um, an experience of egalitarianism, which is more, it was eye-opening for me, that I didn't realize that there was so much um, bias uh, in everyday work. I mean, let's go find Sam who can fix this. That didn't happen there. But I mean, yes and no. I mean, you were just cooking. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, I mean, to me that sounds like if someone has a chip on their shoulder about the way things are someplace else, that they're bringing that baggage to this community. I mean, that always is, happens. It, I mean, cooking is cooking, and if, if they mm -hmm. want to look at you as a chef, that's their thing. That's not mm -hmm. your thing. You didn't. You're not doing. So I mean, how do you, you know, how do you kind of get rid of that? Uh, you can't. I think everybody's got a little opinionated aspect to them. I mean, these people were not trained to live in community from eight years old on. Yeah. So they had a lot of acculturation in high school and college. And I would say the average um, Twin Oaker uh, had quite a bit of college. So if there was a, a difference in the population, sociologically speaking, it was a reasonably well-educated population. 
And uh, so, but they would have picked up a number of uh, ways of challenging things. Um, when you speak of egalitarianism, it doesn't mean that you take challenges off the board. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's coming from old stuff. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, now, where did people come? Why did they want? I mean, people chose to come to this community. That's correct. So where did they come from? Did they always have an idea for community? Did you bring people in like an experiment? Or was this, you know, after your graduate and doctoral work? The, the people would come in when they're in their early 20s uh, or around even in the late teens all the way through you know 30, 40, 50 years of age because they wanted to live in, in a more stable um, a collective environment where things were shared and the income was um, taken off their shoulders. Um, very frankly, many communities um, people come there partly to heal from, and in communities would be a pretty good place to go for financial wounds. Uh, during the year I was there, I didn't even, I, I put my wallet in my dresser drawer and I never pulled it out again. I might have had it a couple of times for a driver's license, and that was about it. It, it. I had no bills, I didn't pay any bills for a full year. And so if I had some angst about paying bills and keeping up my finances personally, then that was just taken away. Um, the income was shared there totally. And everybody worked in the businesses on the farm and almost no one worked outside. Hmm. You could make some money while you were vacationing to help support a vacation. Because as you did your normal labor quota, which sounds kind of authoritarian, but people were expected to work maybe 45 hours a week, which included all the domestic stuff. So it's really more of a 30 hour week. Mm -hmm. Um, but while you're on vacation, um, we could make a little bit of money to support a little bit further travel or whatever. And parents often would send money for a vacation type of thing. Uh, and that would be personal. But the, um, you weren't really allowed to work away from the farm when I was there. So what, what, um, what value does money have? I mean, what are you using money for? It sounds like, I mean, was it self-sustaining the community or? Well, it's, it's interesting. We got... We got an allowance uh, there. Uh, I had some stocks from my parents, and they, it produced about $75 a month interest, and I just took the interest rate and put it back in the Twin Oaks account because I wasn't making, I wasn't supposed to make money while I was sitting there. And then they handed me, uh, put on the log, uh, that I would get $35. Now, what am I going to do with $35? I could save it up for a vacation. And then I could pull it the day before I left for my vacation. Yeah. So that would be one possibility. I tended to buy things to add to my cooking. So I would add some sauces and some spices and things like that that normally would not be bought by the cooking manager. So I tried to upgrade my cooking. My ego got involved here by actually buying some things. People would might buy a bottle of wine once a week. Um, the, the amount of money, $35 a month, didn't really go too far. And um, I didn't see any extremes. I mean, people can't buy that much wine on, or liquor on $35 a month anyway. Yeah. Well, it seemed like, in, I mean, that was an, an instant 50% reduction in your income. You brought in 70, you gave the community 70, and in return you got $35. Roughly. Uh, right. <laughs> to the average person, that I doesn't seem like a great investment. I didn't care. I wasn't 
money oriented. I wasn't investment oriented. I was um, really cooperative oriented and where money um, as an exchange meant really nothing to me during the, during the year. And it was interesting, it kind of grew on me. So if I did get to um, uh, communities uh, like Charlottesville and there were things I might have bought in the past, they had almost no appeal. It was amazing how that dropped, that appeal dropped. The commercialism. I to, yeah, I went to a mall a couple of times and it seemed like another world hmm. and I could not relate to it. I had no, no desire level. Um, you say, well, how do I get something new? Well, new was not impressive in, hmm. in Twin Oaks. We had what was called a community closet, which was a huge area where there were people that were really quite good at being seamstresses mm -hmm. and men learning to use sewing machines too. And the, um, these are reasonably new clothes, sometimes sent by parents, that uh, were fixed up and they have all sorts of sizes, highly organized. So it wasn't just a thrift store that was cluttered with older clothes. But you can often tell how long a person was in Twin Oaks by unmatched socks. How do mismatched socks, how does that? I mean, it just kind of shows that you've blended in and you don't care anymore exactly what, you're, what, 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 what you're wearing. Yeah. Well, um, now let me, this, let me take this on a weird tangent. I got a million follow-up questions. We're going to come back. But this one just hit me. Um, how, 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 does, how does that affect the sexuality of the group? Because you have men and women. And you've broken down traditional roles. You've got an, an androgynous dress. You've got mismatched socks. You've got people who don't really care what they look like. That seems, I mean, that is so counter what you know 90% of the world cares about. Yeah, androgynous dress would be a stretch uh, that would be just compared to the outside. Your words, not mine. Sir. Okay. Your words, not mine. Well, I said it earlier. I, <laughs> yes. let, let me go back a little bit. Let's go back. Um, it would be relative speaking to the, to the fashions of the of the day okay um you know we're talking about homesteading clothes you know sometimes you can't tell when a woman puts on a t-shirt and blue jeans and a man puts on a t-shirt and blue jeans is that androgynous it's probably not by purpose it's probably by the kind of work, work you're doing mm -hmm. um but as you really step back and look at it there was no no focus on fashion for women there was no suit and ties Kind of a little interesting story. I was doing some work. Um, uh, had a grant for meteorolo meteorology grant um, for a uh, the Carnegie Institute for Infant Mortality. We were working on some radiation issues around the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant, and I had that grant before I got there. Um, and I had to put on a suit and tie once to go to a meeting in Washington D.C. And I, <laughs> you thought I was dressed for Halloween. <laughs> Whoa! It was it was weird. it was it was it was a shock, you know. And I, I kind of I was laughing the whole way. You know. That's really bizarre. Mm -hmm. That's how str I mean, that's how off the regular, like off the norm, you guys were. I mean, because most people wouldn't see a suit and think Halloween. You guys are at the other end of the spectrum, is what I'm saying. I would say so, but it was it was laughable. Yeah, you know? sounds yeah, sounds funny. Um, so let's go, I'm going to go back to a couple of different things here. Uh, so the money aspect, this is, I mean, to me, this is, this is important because we have such a financially centered society, you know, money represents power. And obviously you guys were trying to eliminate the power structure and eliminate, and, and part of that is eliminating the financial difference between mm -hmm. people. But how do you have, if you have people who are making, 
you know, they're going in and they're making the bulk of the money. You know, let's say, let's say, you know, 3% of the people are making 50% of the income. You know, there's two people who have good jobs. How do you, um, you know, how do you stop, um, you know, how, how do you stop deadbeats from being in this society? People who aren't doing anything. Okay, like, there's, in case of Twin Oaks, they really screen people for the ability to make their quota and be productive. You normally come there for two weeks, maybe three weeks, um, and be, people would mentor you at the time and, and kind of get an idea of your work ethic. So that was really critical, that there would be a strong work ethic. Um, and I, I think top to bottom, that was one of the features of Twin Oaks, that it was a survival feature. It wasn't, you know, freedom and come there, you know, and just hang out. Um, and it, you could say it was kind of strict. And I think some of the visitors thought it was seemed to kind of be sort of strict. Um, one reality is that the jobs that we had, um, once you were there a little while, you, you could utilize your skills um, to develop some areas where um, you really enjoyed what you were doing. When I was there, I, I gave the Saturday tours, I did all the community correspondence, um, I ran the, um, um, the Holstein Dairy, we produced about 80 gallons of milk a day. This is something I had expertise before I got there. I had a crew of six people that I, um, I met with all the time and I was their backup too. If they couldn't show up, I was, would do the milking. Um, the, the dairy herd actually was um, really, really functioning well when I was there. The crew that I started with uh, was the same crew a year later, which, which says something for stability. Um, so those kind of things, um, those kind of jobs that I, that I had, um, I, I totally enjoyed. Then I, I cooked. I cooked for 80 people twice a week and lunches. And then I'd cook dinner for 100 people um, on uh, weekends. And um, I usually had a, a second cook for the, for the weekend. I was by myself for the lunches. And um, so those are the kind of jobs that I had. And um, I, you know, I just totally enjoyed it. And people that are there often are universalists. And this is true of a lot of communities. They tend to be interested in lots of things. And they tend not to be specialists. Um, it, for example, if you just had a person that only wanted to do fine art, paint all day long, and that's just all they did, and they really were not much of a cook or couldn't fix a, a lawnmower, or was you know opposed to doing a lot of gardening, um, they wouldn't fit into well. You almost needed to select for people that had a wide variety of interests, oh. so they could plug in more easily in different places. The community did, was self-sufficient in terms of income when I, when I was there. So they did indexing of books, back of books. Uh, they had a soybean dairy, which is just starting when I was there, where they made tofu and tempeh and, and uh, soy products. Um, and they made rope products, uh, hammocks, hammock chairs, sandals. And actually the hammocks went into a big market of Pier 1 imports. They're made out of hemp, I assume. They were made out of poly, poly uh, synthetic. 
The reason for that is that cotton um, at the time, which was popular, and I was there in the 80s, um, deteriorated too quickly and would, would begin to have breakdown if it was outside a lot wow. in about a year. The, the synthetics would last, you know, eight or nine years or more. And so that was um, something that we, we went with more what the consumer wanted instead of what we might want. Uh, the, all the hemp products have really come in really in the maybe late 80s and 90s and now. Mm -hmm. So you had, a, you, had a, you had a group that was, you said 80 people, and you, another, another figure here was 68. Both of those are larger than 12. That's correct. So how did, um, how did you manage the different personalities and the breakdowns that happen? Um, I don't think it was an effort to manage. People who were more political and wanted to serve on committees and wanted to be part of the planning of the community would meet and 25 people would show up. It wouldn't be all 80 um, or 75 or whoever was on the farm at the time. Um, when I mentioned 80 a little bit ago, that's about how many I tried to cook for. So it would vary. Oh, I see. Okay. It would vary a little bit. Um, and um, then you would have people that um, would mostly do just the hammocks and they could do them any time of day and night. So they had a, a 24 hour clock to work with. So it seemed like they didn't have to work too hard. And they did a lot of hammocks. Other people would um, step in. And I started to say earlier, the kibbutz often had strong expert managers. And some people would, would, would run an area um, like refrigerator repair and electronics and things like that. And they usually would have other people would help. And they would just be more gentle with the way they approach the helpers in mm -hmm. terms of learning the learning process. One of the breakdowns, I think, is that many of the managers, this is true in the Israeli kibbutz too, always didn't have a great assistant. So if they left for a month or left the community, there was often a void, so electronics refrigerator fixing didn't happen real well mm -hmm. if the main main woman or man left the community for like a few months. One of the biggest problems is when people did leave. And um, people didn't usually leave for, for um, any other reason than they maybe intended to be there two or three years already. And that kind of went by and then they said, well, I'm gonna do something new beyond this community, they had a kind of a preset idea. Right. Sort of like post-college post, uh, uh, experience was, was fairly common. I think a lot of, some, some people were there, there, their parents had pushed them in through college or pushed them in career-wise, uh, maybe a cultural thing. And um, they wanted a break from that, so they would come to Twin Oaks for just a year or two. Uh -huh. uh, and then a lot of people have stayed you know, for 25 years or more. So there was long-term and short-term. Long-term and short-term, right. Huh. Um, well, now this, if you, if you pre-screen people, I mean, isn't that, in an, isn't that indicative of the fact that this can't really work large scale? I mean, this, you know, it doesn't seem like that. That's not how human nature is, has evolved. I think it would be hard to work large scale. I, I would agree with you. Um, again, 
we talked about the ideal at around 12, and that's, those are through my own research in part, reading other, other research articles. Um, like how many people on a desert island would, would work better, uh, you know, together. Um, much over 100, um, you begin to get some dysfunctionality because of the size. Um, when you get up to 500,000, um, you get into infrastructure problems and personality issues that um, could be a real problem. Um, to, to live a whole place that was for a whole year that's totally safe, um, we, there just wasn't an ex experience of um, vandalism. Uh, there was never, never an experience of, um, of stealing. Um, it, was, it was very relaxed and open door kind of thing in terms of not having to lock a car or not having to lock a, a home. But does even, I mean, the definition of stealing, does that even exist? I mean, you're only, stealing is taking someone else's property. Well, the property is universal. You can't really steal it. Yeah, most communities um, have a policy. It, maybe not so much Twin Oaks. A lot, there was a lot of unwritten rules in Twin Oaks, and we don't even like the word rules, but they were still... Who does? Kinda, who who likes the word? You could call them standards. Sure. But the thing is that um, you would leave a note to explain that you'd borrowed this, and it would be gone for two hours, and you would bring it back. So that would be the, the norm to like inform people if you're borrowing something. Because even if it was a community hammer or a community uh, uh, computer, um, people needed to know where it was. Um, another thing is that Twin Oaks had a labor sheet that was published um, and, and present in many rooms, like the, the conference rooms in, May, in the the kitchen area and the office and the uh, dining room where you could tell where everybody was on their labor and see they were a milker that mm -hmm. particular hour or they were a cook that hour or they were um, um, working in a garden for those hours so you can often find people uh, pretty well people were, this is a pre-cell phone environment yeah so um, and I don't know how cell phones might be used now but Likely, there's a there's a little bit of a turn away from technology. There were no televisions at all, zero. Uh, we had a big screen um, TV that we watched, um, actually censored movies, which is put that in quotes um, on mm -hmm. on Wednesdays and Sundays. It was censored for sexism and violence. Sexism. Sexism and violence, right? So, um, uh, you know, a, a, Cult films like Porky's would not have worked. Um, <laughs> so did you dub in like theirs instead of he's and she's and him's and hers? No, this is just these are just first class. I mean, you know, like themes, sex, sexist themes, sexist themes, or sexist, where the film was very chauvinistic, uh -huh. um, and even things that normally you wouldn't think. So, like Burt Reynolds started a film called Starting Over, um, as in really old film, but it would have had a lot of um, male-female uh, encounters that would be so traditional that it would be way off the norm of, of Twin Oaks. And you mentioned in terms of androgyny, which is probably a stretch, um, then, um, you know, how do you work out, you know, the, the sexual differences? And I just think that people came with with their own cultures. I mean, this is, these were not 
you know, 10-year-olds that were grown into this culture. And so some of the romantic uh, encounters would follow the, um, the old norms that, that walked right in the door, you know, from before. Um, I actually talked to a lot of couples, being a kind of a pop sociologist, a lot of couples when they first came into Twin Oaks about their relationship. And then I, I kind of talked to him six months later, and usually the relationship had changed in a mammoth way. Huh. It, it, it essentially dissolved, and, and they had found another partner to, to spend time with. One of the interesting things is that everyone had their own private space. Everyone did, no matter even if they were married. Oh, now, I was going to ask that, because it, it seems like a lot of barriers are broken down, which is right. not always a great thing. And again, this was... Um, this is a social experiment, and they knew it. And, and that originally, because it was a Walton II community, from B.F. Skinner's notion, uh, and the, Skin the Skinnerian notion is not well accepted by Twin Oaks because they didn't feel like they were being controlled by, you know, like lab rats. Um, but in the, uh, on the other hand, there were some things that were ad adopted, like if the produ production in the hammock um, you know, a room that was making hammocks was not very good. They changed the sound system, or they changed the carpet, or changed how many people were working at a particular um, item. They wouldn't blame somebody. Um, I think personal blame is taken away, and a huge effort made on environmental change. And this is the same thing as behavior modification that you have, in, like in group homes. You don't really blame the group home person acting out, you mammothly change the environment, you switch rooms, you know, have them do a new bedroom, uh, or change their furniture, or change the color in their room. That's very Skinnerian. And Twin Oaks practiced some of that. Um, they kind of deny that they were that much Skinnerian, but I saw more than they probably they realized. But What if someone was a screw-up, though? What if someone wasn't good at making hammocks and they kept goofing things up? Um, I think the people that were hammock managers um, that were looking after the business side of it, and really the skilled people, even though we were egalitarian, skilled people interacted with the public in commerce. You know, they had to sell and they had to invoices and sure. things like that, trucking. Um, they would just have private conversations with people in terms of their, their work efforts. They might have another more highly experienced person work side by side with them, and 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 mentor them. So you bring in mentors to um, um, to correct that type of thing, or they would shift them off to another another um, activity throughout the community. Mm -hmm. But most people did hammocks and clean bathrooms, and that wasn't that often. But usually you have a bathroom assignment to clean bathrooms about once a week or once every two weeks. So that really wasn't. And that wasn't used as punishment or anything for someone who, there were, like in the okay. army or anything. Frankly, there was no such concept as punishment. Or ownership. Our ownership. There's no concept of ownership. Um, again, you've got some culture coming, walking in the door, so that you're going to have some feelings like that. But generally speaking, the community tried, tried the best they could to function that way. Um, so those are the kind of things that were, were occurring. Now, in terms of couples, um, each couple, uh, and there were a lot of couples there, 
uh, would share, would have their own private quarters, which they could just take the day off and shut the door, put a do not disturb sign on, and they could guarantee that they would not be bothered. I felt a lot of privacy in this. In fact, more privacy than I normally have. Hmm. Um, I didn't have a phone constantly ringing. I didn't have people making demands on me. Um, I didn't have the surprises from creditors or from a boss or whatever, or even a family member. So it was, it was really a relief to be there. Mm -hmm. And I thought I, my privacy actually increased instead of decreased. Hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed it being there, to tell you the truth. Uh, now, I mean, I guess in, in most societies you need either a governing body or someone making decisions. I mean, how did that work? Was everything just put to a vote? Oh, uh, absolutely not. Well, um, I didn't expect you to say that. Nothing was voted on. Um, really? How did so? Okay, so explain okay. that. They had three planners. These are people that have been there for a while. Uh -huh. um, and um, they looked at policy all the time and, and how things could be improved to make things work, work um, better. This is in all the areas of the community. And um, they had the authority really to make some changes um, when, when the survival of the community and the functioning of the community was in question. Um, and every, um, I wanna say every year, but might've been more often, but every year the plan, one planner would go off the plannership and a new one would come on so it was staggered and then there would always be a, an apprentice planner so that person would just fill right in they've been watching they've been all in all the meetings they just weren't making decisions so it would always shift so every year or every six months you had a turnover at least one person of the plannerships and so the people that have been there longest um weren't just political leaders, they were just expected to be decision makers. And it just kept shifting and shifting and shifting and shifting and shifting. When they had to call a meeting, which I've seen, I've seen some pretty good sized meetings, um, they did not vote, they, they built consensus. Um, and in that case, there are various ways to build consensus, but it was interesting that, that one of the skills you came away from there with was the skill to mitigate, to, um, um, to solve problems, um, to, do, to run meetings, facilitate meetings. Um, as a person going to some of these meetings, and I was moderately political, I guess you could say, political in quotes, um, I picked up a lot of skills which I used later in my planning work because I facilitated a lot of meetings and, you know, creating agendas, making sure everybody is heard, somebody that wasn't really speaking up, asking them a leading question, so they draw them out. Um, and um, you had some, probably some of the better facilitators in the whole country there after, you know, a year or two of practice. Uh, it's interesting that sometimes when people did leave the community, they ended up going to like Washington, D.C. and running big mediating groups and arbitrating groups and, and facilitating groups and would work perhaps in a, a real job where they could work in the corporate or semi-corporate world 
um, as a trainer or as a facilitator are trying to build cooperation. This is a highly cooperative group, so there was absolutely no voting ever. So when you say consensus, so the difference would be like a direct democracy would be, hey, do you guys want eggs or pancakes this morning? And everyone raises their hand and you pick whoever has the most. That's correct. And the way I've heard it is that when you do that, even, especially if the vote's close, 50% of the people are not happy or close to, mm -hmm. let's say it's, you know, let's say it's 60-40. Mm -hmm. Well, 40% of the people aren't necessarily happy with that decision. So the next evolution of that would be consensus, which is similar to what um, the Occupy Wall Street people did, where you have um, kind of a, I would imagine you can explain this a little bit better, but like a, an almost a negotiation bargaining type of thing, where you have, you kind of whittle the idea down so that everybody's happy and everyone mm -hmm. is given their sign off on it. Is that, is that correct? Um, that's correct. Everybody, everybody is a buy-in. Uh, one of the trainings of consensus in general, and it's pretty, it's more complex than I'm probably just saying, is that you train people to, to uh, understand that um, they can try it the way, the way it's being presented. They can have a trial period. So maybe they, part of the decision was that we'll try this for six months and then mm -hmm. we'll, re we'll, re we'll revisit it. That's a way of moving consensus forward. If somebody is really upset and they continue to be upset, you try to understand why they're blocking it. What are their reasons? And then you say, well, if we modify it a little bit this way, does that bring you closer to the group, uh -huh. to the consensus? Now, some groups um, have adopted a consensus minus one or a consensus minus two. So if you have hard-headed people that, that perfect, before they even got to community always had to say no to things uh -huh. and always had to be right, Sometimes in astrology we call them Leos, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to go there. Um, then um, those people uh, would be sitting on the sidelines and then um, the group minus two or a group minus one would have made the decision. But well, doesn't you, that immediately alienate two people? I mean, because like an overall group minus two would mean we're going to get consensus and if minus two individuals, whoever they are. But to say like, oh, we have these two people, they don't necessarily get a say because they're hard-headed. How does... Uh... In almost all cases, those two people would leave feeling a little bit better because part of the reason they were blocking was heard and probably implemented. Just part of it was. But they, um, but they didn't have a say, right? Or... Well, they did have a say. They probably dominated most of the discussion because... We really, the group would be really trying to work to make sure their block um, or their an antagonism was looked at very carefully in all sorts of ways. And maybe some of it could be implemented. And um, so then, but then in that case, then the, then the desires of the group as a whole, let's say 90%, were not necessarily met. Like 90% of the people would have gotten what they wanted, but that entire decision had to be adjusted for one or two people, correct? That's correct. Okay. But and, then, and then you have to live with that. So once you really understand consensus that maybe is better than democracy, which is 50% like it and 50% don't, mm -hmm. and which could be very divisive in community, mm -hmm. or 75% love it and 25% and hate it, therefore the minority gets crushed. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a real thing equal about that. there's a real problem even in this country with democracy, which is you know we don't have a true democracy anyway. We have 
a republic and we have you know people that stand in for us right um, and um, but the minority um, often gets crushed in a democracy um, the word crush is probably too strong but they often don't even get heard right so at least in the consensus um, the other points of view are, are probably spent a lot of time getting hurt. Yeah. So that's, that's great. Well, the, I mean, democracy is yes or no. A yes, you either vote yes or you vote no. And mm -hmm. in a consensus, it's you know black, white, and then the consensus is gray. I mean, mm -hmm. it sounds like you're kind of mixing and matching and getting something that's good well, for everybody. One of the problems with the consensus is it usually takes maybe two or three times longer to make a decision. Yeah. That is a problem. Uh, and by the time everybody gets exhausted, they pretty much agree with each other. Right. Kind of like a jury. It'd be like a jury that has, you know, one or two people, like 12 angry men, where you have one or two people they on have one to, side. They have to maybe have to reach 100% or something. Yeah. And so it'd be very similar to that. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah unanimous decision would be mm -hmm. difficult, but consensus mm -hmm. is as close to unanimous yeah. as you can get. It would be interesting in, in the business world to always have to have a unanimous decision. But mm. but you would need people probably from Twin Oaks to come and facilitate those meetings. Show them how to do it. Show them how to do it. Um, you know? so, but it's, so that's fascinating. But earlier on, we were talking about people having private rooms mm -hmm. and couples having private rooms. Um, and relationships that started in the came into the community as a couple tended to not last. Um, so there were changes in partnerships which created some tension. That was about the only tension that I saw uh, through the entire time I was there. I did not see hardly any anger. I never saw anybody act out in, in a whole year, not once. Um, it was per, kept pretty private. Um, and um, if, if somebody was in the slow mopies and down or depressed, it might be related to relationship. But generally speaking, there was a nice um, vibration, a nice uh, feeling almost daily. And there was a lot of activities there, too. Um, there would be like a choir that would go and sing at some of the local churches. Um, there was a boogie dance, you know, high energy rock and roll dance almost twice a week when I was there. Um, there were people that were doing volleyball and, and, and doing a lot of swimming, canoeing, uh, hiking, walking, gardening. Um, so we had a lot of playground time. Yeah, it sounds like and, it. And so I think that helps to reduce tension uh, as well. Yeah. What, what, what strikes me about this whole thing, and I've, I'm kind of a naturalist. Like, I think that the best systems are those which occur in nature. Mm -hmm. And to have an egalitarian, and I don't want to get into a broader issue, um, but, but it, you know, an egalitarian society is not how anything in nature works. I mean... Um, there's not, there's, there is, I mean, I can't think of one, but you may know before I do, but, you know, there aren't any that work. And I think that, you know, you, you do need the power structures in place. You know, I think masculine and feminine roles are important. I think you need all of that. Let me challenge that from a very unique point of view. Please. The so-called natural order are survival of the fittest. Uh, one could also argue that when you have three birds in a cave, the one bird that sits in the back of the cave doesn't get fed very well, gets scrawny, and, and is going to die. Let's just say that. And then the then the one that stays close to mom and uh, is kind of middle ground and balanced and, and you know eats fine but doesn't take risks, survives. The one that is aggressive 
and really empowered gets too close to the edge, falls out, or gets eaten by a snake. Um, so sometimes natural order does break down. Uh, I've raised livestock, and some of the most aggressive, largest, most beautiful, the best show animals are the ones that have accidents. They're the ones that sometimes overeat. They're the ones that get um, sometimes an infection. They, they eat plants or something like that that are toxic. Um, so it's, there's this natural order being in balance could also be a natural order in terms of survival. We sometimes miss that. Well, I think you're talking about individuals, individual, like an individual bird, an individual dog. I'm talking mm -hmm. about natural orders like gorillas, in, a gorilla society in the rainforest. Mm -hmm. There's a definite power structure. There's an alpha male whose job it is to keep predators away and to mate with the women. And amongst the other males, there's a, a, you know, a pecking order, not to mix metaphors, but there's, you know, he's the number one, there's a number two, and it kind of goes down the chain like mm -hmm. that. You know, wolves have the same thing. They're in a pack, mm -hmm. um, you know, because we are cooperative animals by nature. So in a wolf pack, there's the alpha male, and he eats first, and then everyone kind of eats down the chain. And mm -hmm. if you, you know, once you've established that order, someone gave me a, a, a brilliant example. You have, once you've established an order in a, and you've worked on farms, like in a, in a hen house or a rooster, you know, with chickens, there's a pecking order. That's where it comes from, where each one gets pecked. Once you've established that, it works. They're, they're fine. I mean, the last one doesn't like getting pecked, but there's not much he can do about it. And that's the, mm -hmm. that's the unfortunate brutality of nature. If you have, a, if, let's say you have two of these established pecking orders, and one farmer sells his chickens to another farmer, and you mix those two societies of chickens, it's chaos while they reestablish the pecking order, which is required for them in order to function at all. Mm -hmm. And I think people are very much like that. You can have a group of people in a small community that work and have their order, and you mix them with other people, or you know, 20 people come in, you have to reestablish that. I personally think that's important. You're the expert, but. I feel like you're on to something that is really true. And in fact, you, in, in, in fact, Twin Oaks is very much like Israel. They did have strong managers, highly skilled. It's just that they were, they were asked really to, to be super mentors at the same time. Um, so that, is, is so-called perfect egalitarianism is probably not any different than like nothing's perfect. Perfect power structure with lots of heavy-duty leadership probably doesn't work totally either. Um, so these communities do have some bottom-line authority, partic particularly when they're dealing with the outside world. Their sharpest people are working with sales and things like that. Um, so I would agree with you on that. Um, we have a lot of cooperative, reasonably cooperative um, things in nature with, with you know the ants and, this, and the, um, the social order of geese flying in, on a bee, the, the social order of bees and things like that. But still, there are dominant, um, you know, in, individuals within that in that group. One of the geese has uh, to say where they're going. He's the front guy. Um, he's a front guy, right? Taking all the flack. Taking all the flack. <laughs> he's making the decisions, right or wrong. Yeah. Um, and frankly, I've been involved in a lot of different co-ops, and co-ops do quite well for a little while, but once they actually morph into having one leader and the others are assistant managers, it, suddenly it works better com commercially. But there's a com this mm -hmm. is a commercial thing. 
-hmm. So I would agree the natural order doesn't seem, does seem to work more with a commercial, with a strong leader, a strong boss, so to speak. Um, but we, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could talk all afternoon <laughs> about this because there's lots of factors here. So you, you, you give lectures. How can people get in touch with you? Do you have books, lectures? Well, um, probably my hotmail would be the best. Can I go ahead and give that? Sure. Whatever it's, you like. It's just Bill underscore land, L-A-N-D, at hotmail.com. And I'm available to be on panels or to do a keynote um, and, you know, talk about these kinds of things and more. I was in urban planning as a comprehensive planning, planning director. And I'm vitally interested in co-ops, cooperatives, uh, co-housing. And I've done some consulting with these groups and, you know, help them with their planning issues and zoning issues or how to lay out the community or some of the pitfalls. All right, well, let's, let's, let's stop it there. Uh, and um, yeah, thank you, Bill, for stepping on, for being on the show, man. This is it's a great conversation. And thanks to everyone for listening. Good night.